Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's June the 14th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco. The news this morning is disturbing on many fronts, uh, leaving aside economics and inflation. Uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, if that's the right way to describe it, continues. The Pope now is condemning the ferocity and cruelty of uh, the Russian uh, behavior. And it seems to be going on and on, grinding on and on. We're getting, at least in the media, perhaps a little bit bored with it. It's very repetitive and depressing. One, of course, wonders where the Russians get their money for the war from. Um, uh, and uh, many journalists and writers have asked that same question, uh, particularly in terms of this very murky Russian economic relationship between, uh, with the United Kingdom. There's a BBC piece on, uh, on, on the Ukraine crisis asking how much Russian money there is in the UK. Um, and while Britain supposedly remains one of Putin's fiercest critics, whatever that means, um, uh, CNBC reminds us that the politicians still get, British politicians still get millions of dollars or pounds in Russian linked cash. It's a very attractive notion. New York Times reports on major donations to uh, the United Kingdom's Conservative Party was flagged over uh, Russian concerns. And the Russian billionaires, at least according to my guest today, Oliver Bullo, one of um, the world's leading uh, authorities on financial corruption, um, are, in his language, bouncing back. Um, and indeed, he's argued, and this is particularly chilling, that Russia can only afford its war in Ukraine because Britain helped, consciously or otherwise, raise the cash for the war. Much of this is covered in uh, Oliver's new book, Butler to the World, How Britain Helps the World's Worst People, and of course that perhaps captures Putin, launder money, commit crimes, and get away with anything. It's not just a book about Russia, but Russia seems to be exhibit A. Uh, and I'm thrilled that um, Oliver is joining us from uh, a hotel near Paddington Station. Oliver, I don't want to just talk about Putin and, and, and the war in Ukraine, uh, but uh, it seems to encapsulate your argument, this bizarre relationship between a highly moneyed Russian elite and Britain, where they've uh, laundered their money in Britain and indeed financed this appalling war now. Is that fair? Absolutely. Um, there's been this, as you say, this very strange ongoing relationship between the elites of the UK and the Russian Federation for, well, actually, it goes back since before the start of the Russian Federation, since the Soviet Union, but it, it really accelerated after the collapse of communism. And the reasons for it are fairly simple. Uh, the very wealthy in Russia are good at certain things. They're oligarchs. They're good at stealing fortunes. They're good at, you know, exploiting their relationship with the state to make money. They're good at, you know, jailing business opponents, misusing the courts and all that. But they're not good at all the sort of soft skills 
that are required to really succeed in a globalized financial system. They need someone else to do that for them. They need to hire someone with the skills to you know, bring legal proceedings in a major international court to float on a foreign stock exchange to issue bonds, you know, all of those kind of things. And that's what Britain has done for them. It's become essentially the the enabler at their right hand who who takes the money they steal and washes it, invests it, turns it into real money. Essentially, what Britain does is it turns oligarchs into entrepreneurs, into philanthropists. And it's been doing it for, for decades. And that relationship has really only come to a juddering halt thanks to the sanctions imposed for the Ukraine crisis. Um, but of course, that's only come to a juddering halt with relation to oligarchs from Russia. Britain is butler to the world, not just butler to the Russians. And so all the oligarchs from all the other places are still freely operating in, in London as they always have been. Uh, this is a city that is wide open to money, whoever it belongs to and wherever it comes from. I love the title of the book, Butler to the World. It captures all the contradictions of Britain and in America in particular as this obsession with the royal family and class. Later today, um, I, 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 I'm doing a conversation with Simon Cooper, author of another book, Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tourists Took Over the UK. Uh, Oliver, to what extent is this... Uh, Butler relationship between Britain and the world's leading kleptocrats is it rooted in the Tory party or does it cross over is it as uh, are the left uh, is the Labour Party uh, as guilty as the Conservatives in terms of this great criminality essentially of the British state yeah I mean this goes beyond party political boundaries um, it's been a problem uh, not to the extent that it is now, but uh, but it's been a problem for, for decades. It began back in the 1950s, around the end of the British Empire, when the British Empire was sort of limping to its sort of ignominious end. Um, the financiers in the city of London, who had been, you know, the muscle, if you will, the heart of the British Empire, the people who moved the money that kept the empire going. Um, you know, and the empire was a trading operation, right? That was the point of it. Um, uh, these people looked around for something else to do. There wasn't an empire to serve anymore. So what else do you do with your skills moving money around? And what essentially happened was Britain couldn't afford to be the oligarch anymore. So, But we still knew an awful lot about the being an oligarch business. So we just used that knowledge to advise other people on how to evade restrictions, you know, take over other countries and generally get rich without having to pay, you know, for the privilege. Um, and that has been since it started in the 1950s that has been a you know a truly bipartisan effort to be honest it started as a sort of non-political thing this wasn't a conscious decision by government it was uh, uh, driven more more by the bank of england and by banks in the city of london without politicians really being any the wiser that it was happening they didn't much care what was happening in the city because the city of london was pretty moribund at the time but it's been a reliable source of tax revenue for the governments ever since and the, the more profitable the city of London has become, the more reliable it's been. I was talking to uh, uh, Liam Byrne, who was a leading figure in the last Labour government until 2010. Uh, and he admitted that, that the, the Labour government should have done far more about this money. It should have been far more suspicious about the money that was coming in. And, and it's kind of extraordinary with hindsight, looking back on the things that the British government was able to ignore in order to keep generating the fees from particularly Russian cash flowing through the UK. 
Back in 2006, Russian agents came to London to murder Alexander Litvinenko, an exiled um, dissident here with polonium-210, probably the most deadly poison known to man. Uh, 2008, Russia invaded Georgia, a neighboring sovereign state. Um, 2014, Russia invaded Ukraine, annexed the Crimea uh, and, and, in, and destabilized the east of the country. 2018, Russia sent spies armed with Novichok, a nerve agent, to Salisbury in the UK to, to try and kill uh, an exiled Russian spy. They didn't kill him, but they did kill a local woman called Dawn Sturgis, who just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. They've also sent assassins to other European countries, to Germany, to Austria, to Turkey, and elsewhere. And this is just the stuff we know about. Um, you know, Russia has behaved in an appallingly reckless way um, while, run, while being run essentially by a criminal clan. And we have been all that time more than willing to allow uh, the beneficiaries of that criminality to bank their money here, to send their children to be schooled here, to buy real estate here. And that's essentially because it was profitable for us or it was deemed to be profitable for us to do so. Oliver, the, the classical narrative, the classical trope is Britain lost an empire and had to turn to these corrupt schemes. We had Philip Stevens, for example, on the show, the FT journalist, Britain alone, the path from Suez to Brexit, lots of narratives like this. Philip's pretty good, actually, on it. He's not making any excuses. But we also had um, William Dalrymple on the show uh, a few months ago, the Anglo-Indian historian, a book called Anarchy. And he writes about the way in which the British Empire essentially looted India uh, for a couple of hundred years. Do you think that in a, an odd way, what you're describing is actually not so much a break with British colonialism, but actually a continuation? It's a really good point. I mean, I'm, I love William Dalrymple's work. Um, his work on, on the East India Company is, is groundbreaking, as is that of Satnam Sanghera, Empire Land is a particularly good Yeah, book. and Satnam was on the show too. I, I'm delighted to hear it. You've had, you've had all, the, all the best people. Well, that's why um, we have you, yeah, and, um, But But yes, I mean, if you look at, say, you know, the, the British war in South Africa over the turn of the 19th to 20th century, what's called the Boer War, you know, why did Britain do that? Because they discovered huge quantities of diamonds up in the areas ruled by the Afrikaners and decided that they wanted to take them off them. You know, who, who, I mean, endless country after country, if Britain decided that it wanted something, it just went in and took it in exactly the same way that Putin is trying to do with Ukraine now. Um, you know, Britain behaved in, in an appallingly destabilizing way. The difference between then and now is that Britain was enormously wealthy and could afford to sort of essentially subsidize or pay for the kind of looting operation from its own resources. Um, after two world wars, Britain was bankrupt. It could no longer afford to pay for these looting expeditions out of its own pocket. So instead, it used its knowledge of how to run looting expeditions to help other people to do it. I mean, this began on a relatively small scale, just helping people to dodge taxes, to, to uh, avoid you know, restrictions imposed upon the movement of money by the sort of post-war Bretton Woods system, which was very restrictive on money moving between countries. But since then, um, you know, we've essentially provided the tools allowing the, the rulers of many former colonies you know, the newly independent states of Africa and elsewhere to become, you know, looters of their own countries. You know, the ruling elites of places like Angola, Nigeria, Equatorial Guinea, you know, they behave just as badly as the, as the colonists used to back in the days of the British and Portuguese and other empires. They just happen to be from those countries. But if you look at the money, the money doesn't care who is stealing it. If the money is stolen from Nigeria, it's laundered 
um, in, in the Caribbean or, or Switzerland or wherever and ends up in London like it always did. Um, and so, yes, I, I absolutely agree that the mechanisms that we're looking at are a continuation of colonialism in the, in the sense of the, the route that the money takes. You know, the crucial distinction is the role that Britain is playing. Britain has gone from being, you know, as it were, by side in the financial system of colonialism to sell side. We're no longer, you know, financing the looting ourselves. We just provide looting services to other people. With the Levi's of uh, kleptopia. Um, and in many ways, uh, your new book, Butler to the World, is a continuation of, of, of an earlier book, Moneyland, the inside story of the crooks and kleptocrats who rule the world. I think it's important to say, Oliver, that Britain isn't alone here. I mean, we had Casey uh, Mikel on the show uh, a few months ago. He has a book out, American Kleptocracy. Um, and in many ways, I think what he's, what you say about Britain is as true in America. But I'm curious as to the role of class here, this idea of being butler to the world. Um, uh, uh, Kishua uh, Ishiguro wrote a, a wonderful book, I'm sure you're familiar with it, The Remains of the Day, about this bizarre relationship between butlers and the upper classes. Uh, there's a certain kind of cult of Jeeves, even amongst progressives in England, when I think of somebody like Christopher Hitchens. Is class, can we blame much of this on this British obsession with social class, with the upper and the lower classes? And the idea of a butler, does this enable the, the, the kleptocracy you describe in Butler to the World? Well, one thing I would say with regard to your point about the US, you're right that many of these issues occur in other countries, you know, France as well, uh, Spain um, in, and others. But the difference, key difference between the US and the UK is that the, the US does have the FBI. It does have enforcement agencies who are trying to stop this problem, or at the very least investigating and prosecuting people involved in it. We don't, we don't have that. Um, you know, there, there, there are no prosecutions of these kind of offences in the UK. The, the National Crime Agency, which is our equivalent of the FBI, is, you know, a shadow of, of its American counterparts. But when it comes to class, you're, you're absolutely right. I think a key aspect um, is the continuity of the British ruling class. Britain doesn't have revolutions or hasn't had them for hundreds of years. So we've ended up with this sort of tremendous sort of cultural cachet for the ruling class in Britain, simply because they've been around for so long. So what does Britain offer to kleptocrats from other countries is essentially it offers them to become aristocrats. You know, you can buy yeah. pro property on one of those squares which was designed for aristocrats in the era of Jane Austen. You can go to the clubs, the kind of clubs that Bertie Wooster would have gone to in the Jeeves and Wooster novels. You know, you can buy the kind of country house that we saw in, in Remains of the Day, the, the film. I don't know how many oligarchs have read the book, but they may well have seen the film. Um, you know, all of these things are for sale. You get to essentially co cos cosplay as an aristocrat. And the interesting thing is that, that the, the English aristocracy, they were sort of kleptocrats of their day, as um, William Dalrymple makes clear in, in his books and Satnam Sangara as well. You know, many of the uh, English aristocratic families were people who made their fortunes or certainly massively augmented their fortunes. Uh, above all, the, the royal family and this, well, this and, cult yeah, the royal, of the royal family, particularly in mean, the United absolutely. States, is so distasteful, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I, it's it's very peculiar. I mean, but the, but they've managed, you know, they they made huge fortunes in the slave trade, many of these aristocrats, in, in, in India from the East India Company, in other colonies, in the diamond trade from South Africa. You know, these were essentially kleptocratic ventures by, by the standards of today. But because a few decades have gone by or 100, year, 100 years or two, 
you know, the money's been laundered, the reputations have been laundered, and now we just think of them as being, you know, aristocrats. That's what every kleptocrat wants, is essentially to just become an aristocrat. And that's what Britain can offer to people. And I don't think there are any other countries that can offer that kind of acceptance into the ruling class. And it's, it is extraordinary how quick it can be. I mean, if you look at Yevgeny Lebedev, um, his father, Alexander Lebedev, was a KGB agent, head of the station in, in London at the end of the Soviet period, um, made a fortune in a classic oligarch manner in Russia. Now Yevgeny Lebedev is a member of the British House of Lords. He's the Baron of Siberia, improbably enough. You know, that, it's a single generation. You get to be an, a literal aristocrat, a literal baron. And that's what's available. And I, no other country is able to offer that. It's an incredibly attractive offering for any kleptocrat to come here and, and just be to integrated that fast. You mentioned, Oliver, that um, Britain doesn't have the FBI, but it does have the law courts, for better or worse. There's a headline today that Carol Cadwallader, another um, very brave journalist, won her libel case uh, this uh, against Aaron Banks. This has nothing, well, probably it's connected with the Russians, but not central. Meanwhile, um, Roman Abramovich, one of the typical Russian um, billionaires who bought into the British class system, the British economic system, settled his case with Catherine Belton in the courts. Catherine Belton, a very, again, another very brave uh, a British journalist, uh, was on the show. Uh, she has a book, uh, Putin's People, where in many ways she reports on Russia from the other end of the barrel that you're, you're, you're writing about, Oliver. How important are the courts? Is that our hope? for challenging the rottenness of this system if if we're not going to have constitutional reform and establish some sort of British FBI? I mean, I would certainly re repeat your praise for Catherine Belton's book, Putin's People, which is quite superb, but I would draw the opposite um, lesson from the problems that she faced. Um, she was sued in the UK by five different oligarchs plus a Russian state oil company after what, something like two million pounds worth of costs. That's worth probably close to three million dollars worth of legal costs. They managed to settle with all of those oligarchs and make some changes to the book. You know, I, I draw, you know, a distinction between what would have happened to her in a US court that would have just rejected those claims out of hand. This is clearly a, a book of outstanding public interest and outstanding investigative work. There's no malice involved in it at all. But because they were, you know, able to pick up on some issues in data protection law or defamation law, um, they were she was obliged to settle. Um, it's also possible to make the case that she was only able to go as far as she did and to fight as well as she did because she was published by HarperCollins, and therefore she had Rupert Murdoch as, as it were, an oligarch of her own in her own corner. So, you know, most people would not be able to 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 finance that kind of case. If you from a from a British journalistic perspective. Um, you don't think about what, really whether you can stand up a story before publishing it. I know I know what I can stand up. There are millions of things I can stand up. I think about whether I'm going to be sued to oblivion for publishing it. Um, so no, in, in really the courts here operate in the opposite direction to what you're talking about. They, uh, legal fees are extremely expensive. There are very few, obviously, uh, pro bono lawyers who are willing to go toe to toe with people who can drop millions and millions on a court case. So actually, they, they tend to operate rather in the direction of censoring journalists and inquiries uh, rather than protecting them. And, and actually, because the uh, um, in the enforcement agencies are so underfunded, the courts actually operate in against them as well. There's this very chilling quote from the former head of the National Crime Agency in a parliamentary report published in 2020, 
when asked why she didn't go after more oligarchs, she said bluntly, we have to be concerned about the impact on our budget, making the point that these are very resourceful people who are able to employ extremely resourceful lawyers. And, and that's the challenge. If the oligarchs are essentially able to employ far more well-resourced uh, lawyers to defend them, then the National Crime Agency is able to deploy lawyers to attack them. Then you're essentially always going to lose. Uh, and that's that's the issue. So no, the, the courts aren't coming to save us. Um, uh, so so who, 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 who could come to save us, Oliver? I mean, what could happen? What are your what are your fixes here for uh, both in um, both in Moneyland and in your new book, uh, Butler to the World? Is it a political issue? Is it a constitutional one? No, it's essentially political, um, as uh, weirdly as in as in many um, issues that I write about, and it's, it's, it's relevant far more broadly than financial crime, but it's particularly relevant to financial crime. Our laws are actually quite good. Um, I mean, probably Britain's laws to tackle money laundering and financial crime are probably better than those in the United States. However, they're not enforced. Um, the same is true, for example, with environmental regulation or, or food standards, all sorts of things. Well, we have very good laws, but they're not enforced. Um, and, and this creates this very weird and difficult situation whereby if the government is criticized for something, they will point out that the laws are good or, or maybe they'll just pass a new law. Um, and that law is an excellent way of defanging criticism because it looks like they're doing something. But but it, the laws don't really have any application in, in, in the real world. So it's a little bit like, um, you know, those toy steering wheels that children can play with in a car on the back of the driver's seat. And they sit there and, and turn the wheel and it looks like they're driving when actually they're, they're, they're not really controlling the wheels at all. And that's what a little bit like it feels like with the politicians is that, you know, they're sitting there turning the wheel, making it look like they're doing something when the business carries merrily on simply because there's no connection between the law and the practice on the ground. Um, and so the challenge is how to persuade the politicians to properly resource the law enforcement agencies. And there is a little bit more money going in, thanks to a, a couple of measures which have come in recently, but not nearly enough. We need to be talking about, you know, quadrupling, maybe, maybe, maybe even more. The budget for the national crime agency before it will have any kind of impact on um on the oligarchs uh, and that is something that i can't see happening certainly not under this government you know boris johnson um prime minister well, boris, boris johnson, johnson is the ultimate eight-year-old with that steering wheel who's absolutely to I mean, drive the car and everybody knows he isn't he knows he isn't and yet he still seems to be uh running the show because for because there's nobody else <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he's driving along, you know, beeping the horn in the middle of the steering wheel, me, me, you know, he's loving it, beeping, turning the wheel, but, you know, having all sorts of fun while, while actually nothing is happening. You know, the, the, that report that I mentioned, the one that quoted the National Crime Agency director saying she didn't have the budget to tackle the oligarchs, he tried to suppress the publication of that report um, while he was prime minister. Um, you know, back in, in before the Ukraine crisis happened, uh, a government minister resigned live in Parliament in the House of Lords because he was so fed up with the government's failure to tackle economic crime. It's only since the um, uh, invasion of Ukraine, the government has passed an Economic Crime Act and promises another economic crime bill to solve some of the problems I identify in the book about shell companies and the, and the, and the failure in, of, of enforcement. But unless more money is given to the enforcement agencies, yet again, we'll end up with laws on the books that don't actually mean anything. Um, and and it's 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 very frustrating to watch because the government will, will claim that it's doing something when actually um, it really isn't. I wonder if we're always, as as always in these situations, fighting the last war in our focus on Russia. Not that it's uh, easy not to focus on Russia. 
Um, I had the historian Ian Morris, a historian of antiquity, has a book out, new book. Uh, I thought it was a rather distasteful book, Geography is Destiny, Britain and the World, a 10,000-year history in which he tries to explain Brexit in terms of Britain's island status. What he concludes is that for Britain to survive in the 21st century, it needs to, quote-unquote, make compromises with the Chinese. And I wonder, given how much power and money the Chinese will have uh, in the 21st century, whether the real storm is yet to come in terms of Britain becoming the, the cultural laundering platform for the Chinese, because the Russians are rather pathetic and the Chinese aren't. What, what evidence do we have that the Chinese now are looking at Britain as the place where they can launder their reputations, their money, their authoritarianism? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think he's he's rather missed the boat saying that we need to compromise with the Chinese. He's using the joke on missing the boat since he writes about the island, right? Yes, well, we've been doing that for years. Um, you know, I we mean, don't have any big... boats anymore. We've just got a tunnel. <laughs> yeah, the biggest group of um, the biggest uh, group of, of, of foreign students in, in English private schools are, are Chinese students, far far larger number than Russians. Uh, consistently, the largest uh, share of applicants for British investment visas, these Tier One investor visas, have been Chinese. Um, huge quantities of Chinese investment coming into British real estate, far more than there is Russian, as well as other segments of the population. I mean, I, I have a Russian contact who even jokes about this. He's a sort of minigarch. And he jokes that, you know, look what the Brit Russians buy. We buy football clubs and sports cars. Um, you know, look at what the Chinese buy. They buy ports and nuclear power stations. You should be worried about them, not us. Um, yeah, obviously, it's a self-serving argument from him, but he does actually have a point. Um, it, I, I'm one of the things that is dispiriting about the response to the crisis in Ukraine is the extent to which there hasn't been an awareness that that oligarchs are the problem, not Russian oligarchs in particular. It's perfectly possible to imagine a crisis exploding over Taiwan in a year or two years, and we would end up in exactly the same position as we are now, wondering about how this money got here and wondering how we're going to who we're going to sanction and whether whether we'll be able to find all their money. Um, you know, it's it's endlessly reactive. Um, you know, the, the people who we've sanctioned in relation to Ukraine, the Russian oligarchs, their money is the same money that it was when it came here. Their money is the same money that it was four months ago. What changed was Putin invaded Ukraine. But that's not a way to resolve a law enforcement issue, which is what corruption is. That's a, a foreign policy response. You know, what we really need to do is be proactive, investigate the money before it gets here rather than freeze it after it's been here for a long time. Because at that point, the damage has already been done. The damage caused by corruption and financial crime um, is serious and profound. And if the money's already been stolen, laundered offshore and spent on a super yacht, the damage has been done years ago. You know, we should be trying to stop the money before it gets here in order to get to, to prevent it being stolen in the first but, place. But is there a difference between the money essentially being laundered by, say, the Chinese state versus uh, the Russian kleptocracy, which involves the state where the state is much less strong? I mean, there are always differences. You know, yes, it, it becomes much harder, obviously, to make a, a to bring a legal case if the if the money is, is laundered by the state, you can always find reasons, you know, examples where it's difficult. But there are no cases being brought at all at the moment. You know, there is that we don't need to worry about the fruit, which is halfway up the tree when we're not even worrying about the low hanging fruit. We're not even worrying about the fruit that's lying around on the ground. There's just literally no no effort to bring cases happening at all at the moment. So, you know, yes, there are there will be cases where it's impossible to act against the Chinese because of the nature of the Chinese regime. But Listen, it's it's very, very difficult to export money in any quantity from China uh, because of capital controls that they have on their economy. And yet huge quantity of money washes in from China into the British 
real estate sector every year, all of that money is illegal. Because if you can't export it from China, how's it getting here in the first place? And yet, absolutely no steps are taken to stop it at all. I mean, I mean the true same is true of the United States, of Canada, other places with big, um, you know, Chinese investment going into their real estate sectors. But you know that that no action is being taken. So it it isn't an issue that 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 the state this situation in China or the setup in China is what's stopping us from taking action against Chinese money. There's just no action being taken against any money. Are there any models you you talk about the a political fix, Oliver? perhaps in continental Europe, Germany, for example, or Singapore, models where uh, Britain can um, become, can actually grow up and escape this corruption, this rottenness? I mean, in, t- in enforcement terms, the United States is the clear model, though though the US has many issues with regards to um, you know, money in politics and, and uh, transparency, it's very incredibly opaque shell companies. In terms of enforcement and the role of the FBI and the Southern District of New York and so on, the US is very good. That's what we should be aspiring to be too. Um, in terms of dealing with the issues around transparency, um, New Zealand did a good job. They had problems with foreign money coming in, hiding behind New Zealand shell companies, and they sorted that out and that problem is solved. Um, you know, I would like to see something more along those lines. Uh, continental Europe, to be honest, is... Um, it's not really any better in these terms than the UK is. It's just that the UK is does it more effectively. So the money tends to end up here rather than there. But, you know, money is laundered as much through the Baltic states or German banks or Cyprus or Malta, the, the, you know, the, as much through those as it is through the UK. The UK just tends to be the end point. It's the big wealth haven. What would you say to a critic who would say, well, this is all very well, Oliver, you, maybe you're right, but we haven't done anything wrong. And, and if all this money disappears, then Britain really does become a third world state. I don't know if you're supposed to say that anymore, a developing country, a poor country, it already is becoming increasingly poor. Uh, but we didn't commit these crimes in the first place. And if they want to buy our real estate, if they want to acquire our titles and our football clubs and our property, that's fine. It just, it, at least it enables us to put food on the table. No, I don't have any problem at all with foreign investment by all means. I, I think it's great. Yeah, the more immigrants, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I do have a problem with selling parts of our country to corrupt people because corrupt people don't stop being corrupt when they get off the plane. Right? They don't suddenly see the error of their ways halfway between Nigeria and Heathrow and suddenly decide to be fine, upstanding citizens. They remain the same people who behave in the same way and, and want the same access to politicians. They want the same way to muzzle journalists and so on. It, it, it is inherently corrupting to allow criminal money into your economy. And, and that is, in the long term, going to cost far more money to solve than, than, than you earn from letting it in in the first place. It's always more expensive to solve a problem after it's happened than it is to prevent it happening in the first place. So there is a short term hit from allowing this money to come here. But in the long term, rooting it out, as we're, as we're finding out with trying to stop to find out what, what, what the oligarchs own in London, you know, trying to, to solve it after the problem's happened is, is far, far more expensive. It's like trying to remove the egg from a cake. So, no, I, I, I think it, by all means, the city of London can, can continue to be uh, an international financial centre as long as it's well regulated and, and, and the rules are well enforced. Um, and, and that will continue to be a major source of prosperity. There's far more honest legal money flows through London, multiple times more than there is criminal money. We can survive perfectly well without the criminal money. Um, it, it, it's just greed that means that we take it and laziness. Uh, it, it isn't. There's no actual calculation that says we'd, we'd all be bankrupt without it because it isn't that much money. It, it is dwarfed by the legitimate flows. 
to what extent though are we prisoners of history? I mean, Roman Abramovich, who bought Chelsea, used to be, I wouldn't say a folk hero, but a fairly well-received figure in the media. Then Putin invaded Ukraine, which clearly Abramovich wasn't particularly in favor of, but he was intimately bound up in, in the Putin regime. To what extent should we avoid, or we critics, the British government, should avoid being prisoners of history and address these issues before invasions of Ukraine or Taiwan? I mean, I should say, you know, Mr. Abramovich had a bit of help in his status as a folk hero. In, in the fact yeah, I don't his, like him, but I'm saying his, he wasn't... His, his, his defamation lawyers made sure that journalists never said anything critical about him. Um, you know, he was a, they, they were very active in defending his reputation. Um, but yes, I, I completely agree that we need to to be proactive in terms of preventing this money from coming here. Um, you know, it, it, it's, I think it's shameful as a business model for a country to, to, to live off money, which could be doing so much good in other countries. Um, and I actually think it's inherently distorting to the nature of the country. I actually make a joke about this in a series of talks that I do when I when I when I talk about Britain as a sort of geopolitical Jeeves. And then the problem is that if, if lots of your uh, young people are going to, you know, work as butlers, <coughs> that they're taking the, the, the good money that's available to work for oligarchs, then they're not doing other things. You know, they're not being um, scientists, politicians, they're not being, you know, academics, they're not being business people, they're just serving the needs of wealthy people who can employ them. And that sucks talent out of the talent pool, and you end up with second rate people doing other jobs. So, you know, if you don't essentially have Jeeves as Prime Minister, which is what ideally we'd like, you end up with who? You end up with Bertie Wooster. And that's what we have. We have this, this I mean, just look at Boris Johnson. If you take away, if you if you look at Bertie Wooster from anyone else's perspective than Bertie Wooster, he's a it's just a sort of careless, uh, over-entitled half-wit who crashes around the place, you know, <laughs> causing problems and being bailed out by his intelligent enabler. That's all he is. Jeeves is a, you know, is a is an enabler, and Bertie Wooster is a sort of Bullington club. The problem is we don't have a Jeeves with uh, with Boris Johnson. I don't know if no, well, he has one. Well, well, don't we? I mean, we've got loads of extremely intelligent people who are solving problems for oligarchs, and if they stop doing that and stopped enabling. Um, you know, the crimes of oligarchs and instead ran the country, then we'd probably be in a much better state. Well, there you have it. It's a, it's a fascinating idea. Britain has become, and it's all fact and fiction always bound up with one another, Kishua Aguru's uh, The Remains of the Day, which was a novel, a, fic, a piece of fiction, has become fact in Britain. And Britain has become, at least according to uh, Oliver uh, Buller, the... Uh, the butler to the world. I think it's a compelling argument. Congratulations, Oliver, on the book. It's, um, it's just out in the US. It's been out for a while in the UK for a couple of months. It's already a bestseller. I'm sure it'll be a bestseller. It's a very, very important book. What else should people be reading, Oliver? To, you know, we've done Moneyland. We've done Kleptopia. We've done um, Catherine people. Belton's Putin's People. Uh, Casey Mikkel's uh, American Kleptocracy. What other books should people be reading about this stuff? I'd say, I mean, I've, what I find particularly interesting at the moment is the reasons for the sort of broad crash in sort of crypto and the financial markets and everything, and the, which obviously a lot of it is tied up with yeah. the unwinding of the Fed's sort of easy money program. Um, so I think this book, Christopher Lennon's book, Lords of Easy Money, um, which is just about quantitative easing and the way that money was pumped 
into the economy to support the economy after 2007-8. And so essentially, as a result, what he argues, as a result, we've never actually really dealt with the consequences of the great financial crisis of 2007. Yeah, and Chris is going to be on the show later today, as it happens. He's already been on, but he's going to talk about inflation. How is all this connected with crypto? My understanding, and I've had a couple of personal anecdotes, is that the Russians love crypto because it only adds anarchy. Um, I, I just think in terms of an investment vehicle, um, it very closely tracks the stock markets, to be honest. You know, when the stock markets crash, crypto crashes, because it's just a speculative instrument. It doesn't actually do anything. So, I mean, apart from, you know, very small on the margins, buying a bit of cocaine with it or whatever. But it's essentially a, it's just a speculative instrument. It's a giant Ponzi scheme. So, you know, when the money sucked out the rest of the economy, it sucked out of crypto as well. And I, so I think that, that Christopher Leonard's easy money argument explains huge amounts of what we're seeing. Um, in in the economy. I mean, we're seeing you know, the spreads in European bonds widen up again. We'll see another euro debt crisis. I mean, it, it's, it, it's you know, history repeating itself all over again. And essentially, the Fed has been providing this kind of balm since the financial crisis. And now we've got inflation and they're pulling that away. We're going to see, you know, the consequences. So that's, you know, I love that book. I think it's fascinating. Um, so, but, but what I read, I tend to read either really hardcore nonfiction like that, or very silly, trashy fiction. So the other book I'd recommend is is by um, Ben Aronovich. It's the Rivers of London series, which is an utterly daft book um, about uh, a sort of secret magic department in London's Metropolitan Police, which has to deal with silly magical crimes. It, it's daft. Um, it's ridiculous, but it's very, very funny. That's by David Aronovich? Ben Aronovich. It's oh. David Aronovich's brother. Um, who, who, I know who, David is a big Spurs fan. I don't know the other one. Well, I, I think Ben is a Spurs fan as well. Oh, good. Well, he's definitely, we should encourage that book then. Well, well he's, yeah. but so David Aronovich obviously writes very, very serious political journalism and God bless him for doing it. But Ben, ben Aronovich writes possibly the silliest books currently being published in Britain, but they are a huge amount of fun and I can't recommend them enough.